Do you ever get restless at night thinking of all the who, what, when, where, why of the world? We do too. Hi, we're best friends from for over 10 years and happen to both be named Skylar. Thank you for joining us to talk about our midnight trips down the rabbit hole topics. If you are here listening from the start, thank you. We are excited to be able to pull our passions for history together and be able to learn about new topics and educate others. And with that, let's get into today's topic. We believe that even if a subject matter is upsetting, and this is, it is important to stay knowledgeable and be informed so that future potential events can be avoided. Don't worry, we will not go extensively into the disturbing details. Unfortunately, while researching, we found pretty gruesome pictures of his little body when it was found. We will not be putting that picture up out of respect, but if you are interested, they are out there. We know back in those days, people regularly took pictures post-mortem, but to us, a life was lost, and we intend to respect him and the family, regardless of some of the theories out there surrounding his highly publicized case. This was your warning. Now back to your podcast. So what do a baby monitor, an aviator, and a parent's worst nightmare have in common? Let's face it, the 1930s was not the most lucrative time in our country's history. It was the decade that led to global economic and political crisis. Today, we are going to discuss one of the positive things that came out of the decade, even though the origin was less than a pleasant story. Baby monitors and how the kidnapping and murder of an influential family's young child made them come to be. Born in Detroit, Michigan on February 4, 1902 to parents Evangeline Land Lindbergh and Charles August Lindbergh I, Charles II was raised on a farm in Minnesota. However, as the son of a lawyer and a congressman, he spent much of his childhood in Washington, D.C. He is said to have had a very public life, and that publicity followed him into adulthood. Lindbergh studied mechanical engineering at the University of Wisconsin and dropped out of school in 1922 to learn to fly planes. He made his first solo flight in 1923 after finishing flight school. He got his start in aviation as a barnstormer or stunt pilot. He joined the United States Army Air Service in 1924 and trained as an air service reserve pilot. He later worked as an air mail pilot, flying back and forth between St. Louis and Chicago. In May 1927, 25-year-old Charles Lindbergh II rose to fame when he became the first pilot to fly solo across the Atlantic in 33 and a half hours. He later was named Time Magazine's Man of the Year, becoming the nation's most eligible bachelor. In December of 1927, Charles met the woman who would later become his wife. Lindbergh had accepted an invitation of Dwight Morrow, the American ambassador to Mexico, to visit the Latin American country. Lindbergh flew himself to Mexico, covering 2,100 miles in poor weather conditions, Upon arrival, over 150,000 people welcomed him to Mexico City. In 1927, Charles said, The life of an aviator seemed to me ideal. It involved skill. It brought adventure. It made use of the latest developments of science. Mechanical engineers were fettered to factories and drafting boards, while pilots have the freedom of wind with the expanse of sky. There were times in an aeroplane where it It seemed I had escaped mortality to look down on earth like a god. While there, the ambassador's 21-year-old daughter, Anne Morrow, caught Charles's eye. Anne Morrow was born on June 22, 1906, in Inglewood, New Jersey, to parents Dwight W. Morrow, a partner in the 
J.P. Morgan & Co. and future senator and ambassador in the USA, and Elizabeth Reeve Cutter Morrow, a poet, teacher, and acting president of Smith College. Anne was known to be quiet, sensitive, and quite introverted. In 1924, she enrolled at Smith College, where she majored in English. Anne was a Smith College senior when she traveled to Mexico in December of 1927 to spend the Christmas holidays with her family. Among their guests were, of course, Charles Lindbergh II, four years Anne's senior. Lindbergh was drawn to Anne's quiet nature. Anne fell for Charles instantly, and the two were quickly smitten. Anne would later call Charles her stubborn Swede. Falling in love gave Anne the confidence and freedom to come out of her shell. He took her above the clouds, literally. After only four dates, they were engaged, taking the most eligible bachelor off of the market. Anne didn't accept Charles' proposal lightly. She would go from being a schoolgirl to a celebrity. They were married at the Morrow's Estate in Inglewood, New Jersey on May 27, 1929. In 1929, she became the first American woman to earn a first-class glider pilot's license, as well as her private pilot's license. The following year, at seven months pregnant with their first child in 1930, Anne broke the transcontinental speed record by three hours. She flew as co-pilot and radio operator with Charles from Los Angeles to New York in 14 hours and 45 minutes. She became an award-winning aviator in her own right, earning her private pilot's license in 1931. On June 22, 1930, on Anne's 24th birthday, the couple welcomed their first of six children. A beautiful baby boy named Charles Augustus Lindbergh III, whom the press nicknamed the Eaglet. The little one weighed in at seven and three-quarter pounds, had golden blonde hair and adorable dimples on his chin. With the arrival of their little bundle of joy also came an impending media circus. Everyone wanted to welcome the Lindbergh baby. Due to the media's heavy involvement in the child's life, his health and physical condition at the time were downplayed. The baby was rumored to be anything but normal. There were several issues that the child had been plagued with according to medical records, such as a large cranium due to unfused skull bones, as well as epilepsy and a rickets-like condition that affected the development of bones. The health issues required large doses of vitamin D and daily exposure to a sun lamp kept at his crib side. After the baby's birth, the lone eagle wanted to fly, and he wanted Anne to fly with him. She was not only his wife, but his co-pilot and trusted colleague in his travels. She mapped his air routes, and they agreed they were not going to be held back by parenthood. Anne was not sure about hiring a nanny to help in the beginning, despite being raised in a household who had hired help herself. After much thought, the couple hired a Scottish woman named Betty Gow to be their child's nursemaid. She was his primary caregiver for long stretches at a time and was very often the first person he called for when in needed of comfort. The only person besides his mother that he clung to when he was approached by strangers. Soon after becoming the caregiver for the child, Betty began seeing the very strong opinions that Colonel Lindbergh carried in regards to raising the child, and she didn't necessarily agree. 
Lindbergh believed that children should not be coddled, a belief that was supported by the Watson method, a parenting theory in vogue at the time which firmly discouraged mothers from giving too much love because he believed it would make the child become weak and dependent. To encourage the baby's independence, Mr. Lindbergh built a pen out of chicken wire in the yard. He then placed the baby in the pen for, with a few toys and left him there for hours. When the baby cried, Betty would speak to Anne, and Anne would just say, Betty, there's nothing we can do. It's unclear if she meant that they could not defy the method or that they could not defy Colonel Lindbergh. The couple had settled on a beautiful, sprawling 390-acre estate and built a two-story French country home in the rural outskirts of Hopewell, New Jersey in 1932. They had very few neighbors and coverage of trees surrounding the home. The home was secluded about a half mile from the road with very few neighbors and in a densely wooded area. The property was perfect for the little family who were hoping to stay out of the limelight. Due to the property being under construction still, the couple would stay in Inglewood with Anne's parents during the week, and on the weekends, the family would spend their time at a small farmhouse they had rented to watch over the property's construction. The Lindberghs had a very established routine that seemed to work for their little family while the project was progressing. On Tuesday, March 1st, Charlie caught a cold, and Anne was starting to feel under the weather herself, so she called Betty Gow to ask if she could come to the farmhouse home to help with Charlie. Due to him becoming ill, the Lindberghs decided not to go back to the city on Monday for the first time ever. It seems reasonable enough. The baby is sick. It would be better not to travel with him. Additionally, Charles was scheduled to speak at New York University that day. He always loved to speak in public, but that night he decided to cancel and go back to Hopewell after telephoning home and being informed of the child's health being a problem that day. Betty Gow had rubbed some cough medication on the baby's chest to prevent him from having congestion around 7 o'clock, and Betty and Anne put Charles Jr. to bed following. He was dressed in a woolen sleeping suit and tucked under a blanket, fastened to the mattress with safety pins. He liked to suck his thumbs, so a thumb guard was placed on each of his little thumbs. Betty and the Lindberghs went on about their separate tasks for the night. At 7.30 p.m., Betty checked on the baby. He was sleeping in his crib and accounted for. Later, while Charles was reading in the study below the nursery, Lindbergh stated that he heard a sharp cracking sound, as if a tree branch had broken. Since it was a windy night, he thought nothing of it. At 10 p.m., Betty Gow went to check on the infant before heading to bed herself. This is when she discovered that baby Charlie was gone. At first, though... Betty assumed that Anne or the colonel must have had him, but after checking with them, neither had seen Charlie. Their panic started to escalate. The three of them swept the rooms. Lindbergh grabbed a rifle and checked the grounds. An interesting event is also something to think about prior to this event. Just a few months before, Charles actually hid the baby in a closet and proceeded to tell the entire household the child had been kidnapped. It was more than a half hour before Lindbergh, amused, admitted his prank to his panicking wife and pulled the child back out of the closet. I just cannot. It would be a funny joke regardless of the events that happened after the prank, but this is just ridiculous. When baby Charlie was discovered missing from his crib, the baby's nanny, Betty Gow, was the first to 
approached Lindbergh and asked if he had taken the baby due to the events prior. A frantic search to up nothing. Charles quickly called the New Jersey State Police at around 10.25 p.m., stating, This is Charles Lindbergh. My son has been kidnapped. Suspecting a prank call, Lieutenant Dunn called back to confirm the identity of the caller. When he had heard the same voice, he assured Lindbergh, Men are on the way. First on the scene was the Hopewell Police Chief. First on the scene was the Hopewell Police Chief. After the arrival of police, Charles found a previously overlooked ransom letter on the windowsill. It was dusted for fingerprints. Officer Schofel slit the envelope open with his penknife. He removed a single sheet of paper. The note was handed to Lindbergh and it said, Dear Sir, have $50,000 ready, $25,000 in $20 bills, $15,000 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we will inform you where to deliver the money. We warn you for making anything public or for notifying the police. The child is in great care. There were two interconnected circles that were red and blue below the message, with one hole punched through the red circle and two other holes punched outside of the circles. This note will be the first of many ransom notes to come. Also, an interesting tidbit about the first ransom note is that Betty Gow and Anne had searched the room and swore no note or envelope was seen by either of them. The search of the crime scene uncovered the ransom note that was on the windowsill of an open window along with muddy, unclear footprints in the nursery. A ladder was found about 50 yards away from the nursery window. It was determined that around 9 p.m. someone climbed up the ladder into the second-story nursery of the Lindbergh home and abducted the 20-month-old toddler. The ladder was broken in three pieces, rigged to come apart, presumably to fit into an automobile, and a footprint with the imprint of a sock around it, presumably to soften the footfall of the step down. The ladder had 500 partial fingerprints most being unidentifiable. Two muddy holes beneath the nursery window led the police to believe it had been used to enter and exit from the child's bedroom. Questions have recently been raised as to whether or not those holes were actually deep enough in the wet mud for a person to have climbed up and down with a 30-pound baby. The latter may have been a red herring. Interestingly, The ladder was broken at a point where two sections were joined, and investigators also discovered a chisel, presumably to jibby open the shutters and window of the nursery. Large footprints leading away from the house in a southeasterly direction toward the woods were also seen at the scene. According to her handwritten statement, Betty claimed she suspected Lindbergh of yet another one of his jokes, since she knew he had taken the baby and hid him only two months prior. On March 1, 1932, at 10.46 p.m., a teletype from the New Jersey State Police transmitted to inform the public. Colonel Lindbergh's baby kidnapped from Lindbergh home in Hopewell, New Jersey, sometime between 7.30 p.m. and 10 p.m. this date. Baby is 19 months old and a boy, is dressed in a sleeping suit. Requests that all cars be investigated by police patrols. Authorities, State Police, Trenton, New Jersey, 10.46 p.m. The news that the son of one of the most famously beloved couples in America had been stolen from his crib sent the police of New Jersey and New York, state and local, into action. By midnight, 
dozens of uniformed police and plainclothes detectives were outside the house and searching the grounds. They were joined by flocks of reporters working the story and curious citizens, people known as armchair detectives today. By the next morning, word of the kidnapping had been broadcast to the world. Reporters, cameramen, curious onlookers, and souvenir hunters from all walks of life swarmed over the Lindbergh estate. Any evidence not yet retrieved by police was lost in the stampede. Colonel Schwarzkopf would become the face of law enforcement during the Lindbergh case. He issued statements on the Lindbergh's behalf and answered questions from the press. However, he was not in charge of the investigation. Law enforcement authorities in both New Jersey and New York deferred to Lindbergh throughout the process, even though, under average circumstances, the parents of the victim will not be in charge of the investigation. The night after his son was kidnapped, Charles Lindbergh set up a police command center in his garage. Law enforcement knew Charles was working on his own end to track down the toddler and ran every step the authorities planned to make by the pilot before even pursuing. They were afraid to make the decision on anything that could possibly endanger the baby in such a high-profile case. Obviously, back in the 30s, crime scenes were processed differently, and not at all like how we envision the process by today's standards and technology. At the time of the crime in 1932, the crime fell under the jurisdiction of local law enforcement, meaning the county sheriff and the state troopers. Despite the Bureau of Investigation offering expertise that were disregarded and the authorities proceeded without their input, this may prove to be a mistake on law enforcement's part because it really boils down to finding the baby at all costs. Or it should be, don't you think? The case was not considered to be a federal crime. However, President Herbert Hoover had been involved, declaring that he would move heaven and earth to recover the child. The Coast Guard, Customs Service, Immigration Service, and D.C. Police were alerted. Lindbergh's family offered a $50,000 reward, and the state of New Jersey offered another $25,000. $75,000 was a large sum in the middle of a depression. At the start of the investigation, three theories were being formed by investigators. Theory one was that Charles Lindbergh presumed that the kidnappers were professional hitmen with a mobster or group mentality. Theory number two was that it was orchestrated by a local and unprofessional gang with financial gain as a motive. This was due to the apparent familiarity with the house and the location of the nursery and the modest ransom request given by the kidnappers. The third theory was to pursue the possibility that the kidnapping might have been directly or indirectly the work of a domestic employee. Since somehow the kidnappers had to have been informed that the family was not returning to the Morrow family estate, as was their routine, every week. On March 3, 1932, Anne made a desperate publication to help the kidnappers care for her son and his needs. In hopes that the boy would be tended to appropriately due to his health problems that required significant attention. Just three days later, on March 6, 1932, a second ransom note was found. It was postmarked from Brooklyn, New York on March 4th. It read, Dear Sir, We have warned you not to make anything public and also not to notify the police. Now you have to take the consequences. Means we will have to hold the baby until everything is quiet. We cannot make any appointments just now. We know very well what it means to us. Is it really necessary to make a world affair out of this or to get your baby back as soon as possible? To settle this affair in a quick way will be better for both. Don't be afraid about the baby keeping care of him day and night. 
We also will feed him according to the diet. We are interested to send him back in great health. At the end of the ransom note, a ransom was made for $50,000, but now, now we have to take another person to it and probably have to keep the baby for a longer time as we expected. So the amount will be $70,000. $20,000 in $50 bills, $25,000 in $20 bills, $15,000 in $10 bills, $10,000 in $5 bills. Don't mark any bills or take them from one serial number. We will inform you later where to deliver the money, but we will not do so until the police is out of the case and the papers are quiet. The kidnapping we prepared for years, so we are prepared for everything. It was at this point Limbert asked the mob mediators to pass the letter on to his mob contacts. The note ended up in New York Daily News where it was photographed and distributed. Ed Mulroney, commissioner of the New York Police Department, came up with a plan to surveil potential mailboxes. Mulroney was willing to organize a police raid to rescue the baby, but Lindbergh strongly disapproved of the plan, fearful for his son's safety. He threatened to use his considerable influence to ruin Mulroney's career, and Mulroney relentlessly continued to try but eventually gave in. Side note, this is why it's probably better not to allow a worried and emotionally unstable parent to conduct the investigation of their own missing child. Later, a third note was received by Colonel Henry Breckenridge, the Lindbergh's family attorney, on March 8th. This note requested a note in the newspaper from someone to act as an intermediary. The Lindbergh family received the notes and were in distress with what to do with these notes. An unknown man, Dr. John Condon, was a retired teacher who lived in New York. After the story of the Lindbergh kidnapping broke, Condon wrote to his favorite newspaper, the Bronx Home News, to publicly offer his services to help recover the lost child. Dr. Condon also offered up an additional $1,000 for the safe return of little Charlie. His letter appeared in the March 8, 1932 edition, exactly one week after the kidnapping. This seemingly impulsive and odd move on Condon's part might have seemed like it would amount to nothing, but... The kidnapper saw his letter on March 9th, and a fourth note was given to Dr. Condon. The note agreed that he would be the go-between. The note said, Mr. Colonel Lindbergh Hopewell, dear sir, Mr. Condon may act as a go-between. You may give him the $70,000, make one packet the size will be. A drawing appeared to show a size of 7 by 6 by 14 inches. We have notified you already in what kind of bills. We warn you not to set any trap in any way. If you or someone else will notify the police, there will be further delay. After we have the money in hand, we will tell you where to find your boy. You may have an airplane ready. It is about 150 miles away. But before telling you the address, a delay of eight hours will be between. The letter he received had the symbol, the same as the other ransom notes, two overlapping circles with three holes punched inside them. With Lindbergh's blessing, he communicated with the kidnappers by placing cryptic messages in the newspaper, the New York American, signing himself as Jaffsey, a name based on his initials, JFC. The kidnappers communicated through notes which were delivered to the house. Those notes in turn contained instructions for where to find other notes which would direct Condon to a meeting place. On March 10, 1932, Dr. Condon was given $70,000 in cash as a ransom. He immediately began to negotiate the payment of the ransom through the newspaper. 
On March 12th, Dr. Condon received an anonymous telephone call and a fifth ransom note. The note was delivered by a taxi driver named Joseph Peroni, who claimed the note was given to him by a stranger. The note informed the doctor that another note would be found beneath a stone near the subway station. When found, this note said, Mr. Condon, we trust you, but we will note, come to your house. It is too danger. Even you can note if police or secret service is watching you. Follow this instruction. Take a car and drive to the last subway station from Jerome Ave. Here, a hundred feet from the last station on the left side is an empty Frankfurter stand with a big open porch around. You will find a notice in center of the porch underneath a stone. This notice will tell you where to find us. Act accordingly. After three quarters of an hour, be on that place. Bring money with you. Dr. Condon followed the instructions and found the sixth note that instructed him to cross the street and follow the fence from the cemetery direction to 233rd Street. I will meet you there. The sixth note demanded that meet with the kidnapper at Woodlawn Cemetery, which is located near 233rd Street in Jerome Ave. At the cemetery meeting, the man who called himself John discussed the payment of the ransom with Dr. Condon. The man had a Germanic accent and asked for the money. Condon told him that he didn't have it and that he couldn't deliver it until he had seen the baby. John said that he could not let him see the baby because number one would be mad, but agreed to give Dr. Condon evidence, the baby's sleeping suit, by Monday morning to prove he had had the child. John wore his hat pulled over his forehead and his coat collar turned up, but Condon later provided a description for a composite sketch. Despite John not having the baby with him and Condon having no ransom money at the first meeting, they agreed to meet again. After the first meeting with Cemetery John, the child's sleeping suit was mailed to Condon like John promised. A meeting paying the ransom was then arranged. Two packages of bills were made, both containing gold certificates, currency that was still based on the gold standard. At Lindbergh's request, the ransom money was not marked as the kidnappers had warned him not to, but investigators kept note of all of the serial numbers. Investigators knew that next year all citizens were required to exchange gold certificates for regular greenbacks because people were hoarding gold during the Depression, which drained the country's gold reserves. That meant the kidnapper would have to deposit or spend his gold certificates, increasing the chance that someone would spot a matching serial number. Following the interaction, three more similar ransom notes were sent leading up to March 29th when Betty Gow, the Lindbergh nanny, found the infant's thumb guard worn at the night of the kidnapping near the entrance to the estate. The next day, a ninth ransom note was given to Condon, followed by several other notes stating that the family had nothing to worry about and the baby was safe and that they would plan a meeting time soon. The twelfth note agreed on another meeting to occur that night at St. Raymond's Cemetery. Dr. Condon met with whom he assumed was John, hoping to reduce the ransom demanded to 50000 Condon walked among the tombstones while Lindbergh, armed with a pistol, waited in the car. No one else seemed to be around. As the doctor returned to the car to tell Lindbergh that John was not there, a voice called out, Hey, doctor! Both Condon and Charles heard the voice. The mysterious cemetery John called out again, Here, doctor! Over here! Over here! Condon returned to the graveyard and saw a figure. He, he followed, lost him, then was startled when a crouched figure said, Hello? It was John. 
After some discussion about the whereabouts of the baby, Condon returned to the car to get the money. Dr. Condon gave the man $50,000 in gold certificates in exchange for a 13th note and a receipt. The man made sure to tell Condon that the letter should not be opened for six hours. He said the baby was all right and was being safely kept on the boat called Nellie. John disappeared into the cemetery and Condon returned to the car and Lindbergh then drove away. This note read, The boy is on boat Nellie. It is a small boat, 28 feet long. Two person are on the boat. They are innocent. You will find the boat between Horseneck Beach and Gay Head near Elizabeth Island. Authorities searched near Martha's Vineyard area twice for the boat, but the search was unsuccessful. No one else had seen this mysterious John, but Dr. Condon insisted he could positively identify the man if he met him again. The massive publicity in this case was more of a crutch than a help. Tips came in from all over the world. There were sightings of the baby being reported from England, France, South America, and India, but the unfortunate truth was he had never really gone that far from home and would soon end up being discovered. Tons of registries of boats were examined in hopes to locate the boat Nelly, on which the baby was supposedly on, according to the 13th and last ransom note handed to Dr. Condon. Investigators were buried in misinformation provided by well-meaning but uninformed individuals, crazies, and publicity seekers as well. This is always unfortunate in cases like this where they're high profile because it, in retrospect, is a giant waste of time, but you don't know what you're actually going to find that's valid, and everything kind of has to be checked out. With very few viable leads to go on, by July 1932, the puzzling facts of the case convinced the police that it must have been an inside job. The natural conclusion was that someone, such as a servant with inside knowledge of the Lindbergh family schedule, had to have tipped off the routine being in a different location due to the fact that that was completely against the family's schedule. Inspector Walsh, who was on loan to the New Jersey State Police, agreed with Lieutenant Keaton about the high possibility that the kidnapping must have been an inside job, particularly because the kidnappers knew both that the Limburgs were changing their habit and not returning to Inglewood, but also exactly which room the nursery was, which bothered Walsh significantly in this case. Betty Gow, the nanny, was intimately involved with the event at almost every point. She was the last person to see Charlie alive and is the first to discover he was missing. Perhaps, not surprisingly, at the start of the investigation, the finger was pointed at her and her boyfriend, Henrik Red Johnson, a Norwegian sailor that she hadn't known very long and who had just moved to Jersey to be near her. By Red's own admission, he knew where the family was staying. He stated, I am Betty's boyfriend. I also knew where the baby was on March 1st because Betty had to break a date with me. When the police picked me up, they found out that I had a green Chrysler coupe. This was a problem because a local resident said that he had seen a green car near the Lindbergh house on the day of the crime. Inside my car, the police found an empty milk bottle in the seat. I told them that I drink lots of milk and that I usually toss the empty bottles in the back seat. I've never had a criminal record, but I am an illegal alien. Due to Betty's closeness to the case, she was turned into a media fixation. She was quickly cleared of any blame, but an understandably traumatized Miss Gow left her job and returned to Scotland until the trial. 
At the point of the investigation with Betty cleared, suspicions then fell upon Violet Sharp, a 28-year-old British household servant on the Morrow estate. She knew about the Lindberghs' plans. Violet was scheduled for questioning on March 10th. Without Violet's knowledge, the police searched her living quarters before even questioning her. Violet had many names and addresses, business cards, letters, and a savings account book which showed her savings to be $1,600 with a salary of only $100 a month. Some have speculated how she would be able to save that much money in only two years. She was known by her friends for saving most of her money, but it was still in question. When questioned about her movements on March 1st, she said her affairs were private. She said that on Tuesday, March 1st, Anne Lindbergh called the Morrow household to ask for Betty Gow to return to Hopewell because the baby had a cold. She was inconsistent in her testimony of her actions and whereabouts on the night of March 1st, 1932, and acted extremely nervous and suspicious when she was questioned. This led investigators to put the spotlight directly on her. On June 9th, police questioned Violet. After hearing an anonymous tip of an affair, the detectives asked again of her whereabouts on the night in question. He brought along a photograph of a nam- he brought along a photograph of a man named Ernest Brinkert and asked Violet if this was the Ernie she dated on March 1st. Violet agreed. Violet Sharp had become so hysterical during questioning that Walsh in Schwarzkopf were sure they were on to something, which they were technically. She was, by all intents of purposes, hiding something, but it wasn't exactly what they expected her of. They called the Moreau estate to inform them that they would be coming for further questioning of Violet. Violet's further questioning, however, was scheduled for the next day and would never happen. She went upstairs after hearing the news of the questioning and went to her room and poisoned herself with cyanide. She walked downstairs to a chambermaid named Emily Kemperian, started to speak, and fell forward. Violet was dead within minutes. After her death, the man that Violet had been with, as well as the other couple that was with them, had corroborated her story. She had been telling the truth, but could not admit the affair that might cost her her position at the Morrow estate and jeopardize her relationship and a reported engagement to the butler, Septimus Banks. Another strange person involved in the case who Walsh considered to be the most suspicious was John F. Condon, the self-appointed middleman. A few days after Violet Sharp's suicide, Condon was brought in for questioning. Despite hours of questioning, he was released. During July and August, Schwarzkopf and his men tapped Condon's telephone, opened his mail, dug holes in his yard, and stripped the wallpaper in his studies. During the next year and a half, unfazed by the suspicions around him, Condon reviewed thousands of mugshots looking for Cemetery John. A year after the kidnapping, in order to show his support, Charles Lindbergh invited Condon and his daughter to dinner at the Morrow Estate. Shortly after that, Schwarzkopf and his men decided that Condon was just eccentric, but not involved. On May 12, 1932, the little eaglet's body was accidentally discovered by William Allen, an assistant on a truck driven by Orville Wilson. The badly decomposed and face down and partially buried body of a one-year-old was discovered in the woods outside of Trenton, New Jersey. The location of the body was about four and a half miles southeast of the Lindbergh home, 45 feet from the highway. 
The body was identified by his father, Charles, and Betty Gow to be Charles Lindbergh Jr. The primary identification was the baby's nightshirt, which Gow had stitched together from a bit of cloth given to her by the Lindbergh's maid, Elsie Waitley. Both Betty Gow and Waitley testified to this in court and identified the cloth and the thread used on the garment. The other forms of identification were the child's teeth, hair, and overlapping toes. The body was so decomposed that it was not even possible at first to determine whether it was a boy or a girl. The man who found it described it as a skeleton, what hadn't been decomposed or partially eaten by animals anyway. The brain did not contain a bullet. However, a small hole at the base of the skull was found and it was concluded that it was made post-mortem. They concluded that it was likely made by Inspector Walsh at the discovery site when he poked the soft skull with a stick. The fontanelle, or as it's also known, the soft spot on the top of a baby's head that stays open until the child is about one, mo- one year old, was found to be one inch in diameter. The eaglet was 20 months old at the time of the kidnapping. Dr. Mitchell found four fracture lines and a decomposed blood clot. The left leg and both hands were also missing. He concluded that the cause of death was a blow to the head. The baby could have been murdered in his room since the baby's fractured skull does not bleed. Or he may have been dropped while the kidnapper was trying to carry him down the ladder. The coroner's report stated that the body had been deceased and left in the elements for over two months. Less than 24 hours later, and an hour after it had been identified as Charles Lindbergh Jr., the remains were cremated almost immediately at the instance of his his father. Fearing his son's resting place would become a tourist attraction, the colonel scattered his ashes at sea. No further forensic testing, including DNA testing, was ever possible. There was no question that the corpse had been in the woods for several months, making the time of death very probably around the time of the kidnapping. No photographs of the skull, the blood clot, or the small round hold were ever taken. Other than some measurements and a one-page report typed by Swayze, there was nothing for Shorkoff and his investigators to use. The investigation seemed to have hit a dead end until the gold certificates proved to be one of the best tools the Mourning family could have had on their side. The serial numbers of the ransom bills were recorded in a list distributed to banks across the nation. Lieutenant Finn was updating a map to indicate where the bills were turning up. President Roosevelt, shortly after taking office, ordered in Executive Order 6102 of 1933, that the private ownership of gold certificates, meaning that all gold or gold certificates valued at more than $100, had to be turned in by May 1st, 1933. Although the timeline drew near for the expiration, investigators would follow the gold note trail for two years. The first gold notes from the ransom money surfaced shortly after the delivery of ransom on April 2nd, 1932. By that fall, a quarter of a million booklets listing the serial numbers of the ransom bills had been distributed across the nation. On May 1st of 1933, $2,980 of the ransom gold notes was turned in to the Federal Reserve in New York City. 
The deposit slip for the exchange of the currency was signed by J.J. Faulkner. There was no description of J.J. Faulkner or his whereabouts, and this still remains an unresolved component of the case to this day. From time to time, ransom bills turned up on a slow but fairly regular basis. Finally, a break in the case came on September 15, 1934. Shortly before 10 a.m., a dark blue Dodge sedan pulled up to the gasoline pumps at a Warner Quinlan service station in Lexington Avenue in Upper Manhattan. A gas station attendant named Walter Lyle walked over to the car and filled it with five gallons of ethyl, like the man behind the wheel had been requested. The gas station attendant was suspicious of the $10 gold certificate from a man paying 98 cents worth of gas. The attendant wrote on the bill, the license number of the automobile driven by the man and noted the man spoke with a German accent. The license plate identified the man as Richard Hopman. Hopman was born in Germany in 1899. He and two of his brothers fought in World War I, but only he had survived. After the war, like many survivors, he struggled financially and became a thief. He was arrested and escaped from prison and stowed away on a ship to the United States. He was ultimately caught and returned to Germany. He made one more failed attempt before successfully entering the U.S. at age 23. While living in America, Richard Hopman found work as a carpenter and married another German immigrant, Anne Schopler. This led investigators to reach out to Richard Hopman's application for a driver's license. His handwriting formation was distinctively European. He spelled New York with a hyphen, just like the kidnapper. He placed the dollar sign after the number, just like the kidnapper. The kidnapper spelled night as N-I-H-G-T. Hotman spelled light as L-I-H-G-T. Based on the compelling information, Hotman's home was closely surveilled by authorities. Hotman was a good-looking athletic man who resembled the composite sketch of John as well. On September 9, 1934, at 9 a.m., Bruno Richard Hopman was taken into custody. His arrest brought an end to the more than two-year-long investigation into the kidnapping and murder of Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. An angry mob gathered outside the Greenwich Police Station where he was taken. At the time of his arrest, he was carrying a $20 ransom bill. While searching his home, police took note of the fact that Richard's eye kept looking at his garage. He was asked if that was where he had hidden the ransom money. He said, I have no money. Later, the garage was dismantled board by board during the search. $1,830 of the ransom money was hidden behind a board. Another $11,930 was found in an empty can near a window in the garage. Hotman swore that a friend had given him the money to hold on to and that he had no connection to the crime. Bruno was charged with kidnapping and murder. He pleaded not guilty. However, the evidence against him came together rather quickly. Richard Hotman was indicted in the Bronx on September 24, 1934 for extorting the $50,000 ransom from Charles Lindbergh. Two weeks later, on October 8, 1934, Hotman was indicted in New Jersey for the murder of Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. When questioned about having the ransom money in his possession, Hotman ex explained something which would then become known as the fish story. This was that his 
friend and occasional business partner, Isidore Fish, gave him a shoebox before he had left for Germany. Fish, a failed businessman who was known for conning his friends out of money, died of tuberculosis and never returned to the U.S. Ottman claimed that he stored the shoebox in a closet, but it had gotten wet from a leaky pipe. He claimed the shoebox disintegrated, revealing thousands of dollars. Hotman explained that since Fish owed him money, he decided to pay himself back. He said that he had no idea it was the Lindbergh ransom money. He took the money out of the shoebox, dried it, and hid bundles of money here and there in his garage for safekeeping. Having this amount of money in Richard's eyes justified both himself and his wife quitting their jobs. When Hotman was interrogated, he was beaten. He maintained still that the money had been given to him by Isidore Fish, his business partner, before he had left for Germany. The key part of the evidence that tied Hotman to the kidnapping was a section of attic floorboard, though. While searching the attic of Hotman's rental home for more ransom money or other clues, police detective Louis Bornman noticed that an eight-foot section of the attic wood flooring was missing. There was also a little pile of sawdust where it had been sawn away. The floorboard was taken from Hotman's Bronx apartment and was found to precisely match the grain of wood used for rail 16 of the latter found at the kidnapped scene by wood expert Arthur Kohler. The four rarely spaced extra nail holes in rail 16 matched up perfectly with the holes in the attic floor joists. Hotman had worked part-time at the Bronx lumberyard, which sold some of the wood that was also used for the ladder. The kidnapper's ladder was made with eight penny nails from the Pittsburgh Steel Company. Hotman had a keg of those nails in his garage. Kohler matched the nails and nicks and groove marks made by Hotman's hand planer to the nicks and grooves on the wood used in the kidnap ladder, much as ballistic experts would match bullet scratches to the barrel of a particular gun. Hotman had worked very little since the time of the kidnapping and apparently had not resharpened his planer, which still retained the distinct series of nicks on the blade. Several jurors said after the trial that wood evidence was the most significant thing that proved Hotman's guilt. Richard had a criminal record in Germany with one of his previous convictions involving a second-story job using a ladder. Millard Wooded, a logger who lived a mile from the Lindbergh house, said that he saw Hotman around the Lindbergh estate on two different occasions in the days before the kidnapping. In the search of his apartment by police, one item was found with a notebook that contained a sketch for the construction of a collapsible ladder similar to the one that was found at the scene of the crime in March of 1932. Another piece of convicting evidence in court was that Condon identified Hotman as John, although at the police lineup he said that he was not John, and he was seemingly being pressured to say this in court. This change in his identification causes many to wonder whether Condon had a secret that the cops could have charged him with or if something else was going on. Charles Lindbergh also testified that the voice of John that he had heard in the cemetery sounded a lot like Hoff. The taxi driver testified that the man who gave him a note to deliver to Dr. Condon was Hopman. Hopman quit his job within days after the ransom money was paid through Dr. Condon's. Hotman had also quit his job within days after the ransom money was paid. Dr. Condon's phone number was found written on a closet wall in Hotman's kitchen as well. 
A gas station attendant and a movie theater cashier identified Hotman as having used $10 gold certificates. The resulting trial was a national sensation and the first of its kind. The jurors were ordinary working class men and women for whom the $3 a day stipend was real money after five years of being in a depression. Being sequestered at the local hotel meant they were all given free meals. In addition, there was the glitz and glam of seeing the Lindberghs up close and personal, as well as glimpses of America's top journalists, such as Walter Winchell and Damon Runyon, in town to cover the court proceedings, and also the ability to catch a glimpse of the many Hollywood stars who were also there for the trial. The trial of Bruno Hotman and the Lindbergh baby kidnapping was one of the first cases based on forensic evidence, and the evidence still holds up today. The prosecutors used fingerprint specialists, handwriting experts, and a xylotomist, a wood structure specialist. Hotman's trial began on January 3, 1935 in Flemington, New Jersey, and lasted five weeks. However, the publicity was not created by the prosecution or the Limburgs and was just as often a burden on them as it was on the defense. For example, the newspapers broke the news that ransom money was being tracked by serial numbers, and this was idiotic because it would have alerted the kidnapper to stop passing bills if it wasn't the suspect that they were already accusing. The prosecution's case was not particularly strong by today's standard, nor was this a fair trial by any means. The defense was prejudiced against Hotman as a foreigner and a German. Willens, the prosecutor, made snarky remarks such as, Hotman wouldn't be an American. No American gangster and no American racketeer ever sank to the level of killing babies. Ah, no. Oh, no. It had to be a fellow that had ice water in his veins, not blood. The prosecution brought surprise witnesses without giving the defense time to prepare, handing over all evidence that maybe exculpatory was not explicitly required of prosecutors until 1963 with the Brady case. However, this is still ridiculous. While no one witnessed the crime or saw Hotman with the Lindbergh child, Hotman being identified by several witnesses was just enough for the jury. When on the stand, Hotman himself looked disorganized, ill-tempered, and arrogant. The defense suggested that Violet Sharp, the maid who committed suicide, and Isidore Fitch, the dead business partner, were the real kidnappers in the case, but they couldn't take part in the forensic evidence of the kidnapping notes, the ransom money, and the latter. I don't care about handwriting. I don't care about anything about wood. Riley, the defense attorney, was angry, but his anger was in vain. It was a great defense, although eyewitness testimony was being used in the trial, and it, even though circumstantial evidence was what it was, it ultimately sent Hopman to the electric chair. Observers were surprised when Riley conceded that the corpse found in the woods was the Lindbergh baby instead of trying to cast doubt on the identification. When it came to the latter, however, Riley recognized how dangerous that evidence was for his client and unsuccessfully tried to keep the latter out of court. The defense promised seven experts would testify that Hotman had not written the ransom notes, but in the end could only produce one who argued that the letter formation and spelling peculiarities in the ransom notes were common among all Europeans, not just Hotman. On the other hand, the prosecution provided eight handwriting experts who testified that only Hotman could have written the notes. 
Lindbergh's claim that he recognized Hopman's voice from the night at the cemetery two and a half years earlier as being the same voice that said, Hey, Doc, seems extremely far-fetched. But Charles was the lone eagle, as the prosecution told the jury. And Lindy remembered that voice. And who is to say he didn't? Are you going to substitute your judgment for his? What is strange is that lawyers for both sides put some of the strangest and most random people on the stand. Major trials seem to attract eccentricities. You know, people who appear at the last minute, people who claim to have been holding on to devastating evidence but never mentioned it to anybody until the cameras and crowds gather for the trial. These types of people want clout and recognition and have no interest in what's actually going on in the case. This phenomenon continues to happen today almost 100 years later. At the Lindbergh trial, a man almost caused a mistrial when he stood up in the courtroom and yelled that he knew the identity of the killer and the Hotman was innocent. Judge Trenchard sent the jury out to begin deliberations at 11.21 on February 13th. The first jury ballot consisted of five for life imprisonment. The five voters were Pill, Snyder, Smith, Kravitz, and Hockenberry. They voted again. This time, Snyder and Pill voted for death. The next time, Hockenberry changed his vote to death. A fourth vote and Smith agreed to the death sentence. Finally, after five votes and many hours of arguing, Kravitz voted for death. He said he was unsure about the death penalty because Hotman's life could not be returned if new evidence proved him not to be the killer years later. The jury spent 11 hours and 24 minutes in deliberation. During this time, Hotman was taken to a cell. Once he was released from the handcuffs, he fell. His face made contact with the floor. He was lifted to his little cot where he began to cry. At 1028 that night, the courthouse bell rang, signaling that the jury had reached its decision. Richard was handcuffed to two guards and stand between them, silent and motionless, his face visibly white and anxious while he awaited his fate. A few minutes later, jury foreman Charles Walton announced, we find the defendant, Bruno Richard Hotman, guilty of murder in the first degree. Judge Trichard pronounced, The sentence of the court is that you suffered death at the time and place and in the manner specified by law. A messenger inside the courthouse ran to a window and shouted the news to thousands of people who had been waiting outside. The courthouse bell began to toll. A great roar of victory swept over the crowd as they learned the jury had decided on the death penalty. Within a few minutes, Hotman was led away to his cell in a county jail. He did not even look in the direction of his wife, who sat a few feet away from him. She looked at him with red eyes but did not cry. Colonel Charles Lindbergh, who attended every session of the 32 court days of the trial from beginning to end, was not in court on the day the verdict was returned. He had returned to his home in Inglewood in the afternoon. The defense appealed the verdict and on October 9, 1935, the Supreme Court of the State of New Jersey upheld the verdict of the lower court. Hotman appealed to the Supreme Court and was denied on December 9, 1935, and he was set to be electrocuted on January 17, 1936. However, on the same day, the governor of the State of New Jersey granted a 30-day reprieve, and on February 17, 1936, Hotman was resentenced to be electrocuted during the week of March 30, 1936. On the day of his execution, the pardon court of the State of New Jersey denied Hotman's petition for clemency. Hotman consistently insisted on his innocence. 
Richard even turned down a newspaper offer of $75,000, more money than the ransom amount, that would be given to his wife and son to confess and name any accomplices in the murder. Any and all attempts to win a confession from Hotman proved pointless. Samuel Leibowitz visited Hotman's three times, trying unsuccessfully to convince him that his only chance of avoiding the chair was in confessing. He, however, succeeded in Hotman. He, however, succeeded in getting Hotman to speculate as to how a crime like this could have actually happened. Interestingly, Hotman said the crime would have had to have been committed by a gang of kidnappers and that the person who entered the baby's room could have easily run down the inside stairs of the home and out the door. The day after sentencing, Hotman was interviewed in jail by reporters. Are you afraid to go to the electric chair, Bruno? One of the reporters asked. He replied, You can imagine how I feel when I think of my wife and child, but I have no fear for myself because I know that I am innocent. If I have to go to the chair in the end, I will go like a man and like an innocent man. Richard Hotman's last statement on April 3rd, 1936 was, I am glad that my life in a world which has not understood me has ended. Soon I will be home with my Lord, so I am dying an innocent man. Should, however, my death serve for the purpose of abolishing capital punishment, Such a punishment being arrived at only by circumstantial evidence, I feel that my death has not been in vain. I am at peace with God. I repeat, I protest my innocence of the crime for which I was convicted. However, I die with no malice or hatred in my heart. The love of Christ has filled my soul and I am happy in him. On April 3, 1936, at 8.44 p.m. in the New Jersey State Prison, 2,000 volts of electricity were sent through Richard Hotman's body. Robert Elliott, the executioner, later reflected, I dreaded this assignment more than any other. I wondered whether justice was actually being served by snuffing out the life on this man. After the kidnapping and murder, Americans were rightfully worried about ongoing surges of kidnapping happening and demanded changes in legislation. Representative Cochran of Missouri said, there is fear throughout the country and a great deal of that fear is in the hearts of the mothers and has been brought by this limbered case. It is the duty of Congress to stamp out that fear, to let every mother of this country know that her child, no matter how humble her station in life may be, or her husband is going to receive from the United States government the same assistance that was given in this limbered case. On June 17, 1932, three and a half months after Charlie's kidnapping, the 72nd Congress passed the Federal Kidnapping Act, or the Lindbergh Law. President Hoover signed the bill into law on June 22nd, which would have been Charlie's second birthday. The Lindbergh Act of 1932 makes it a federal crime to transport a kidnapped victim across state lines. It allows federal agents to pursue the kidnappers across state borders, whereas local law enforcement is bound by jurisdiction. The bill also stated that if the victim was not returned within a week, the FBI gains jurisdiction over the investigation. Disentangling them from local politics, an issue that was for sure a problem in this case too. Today's kidnapping law authorizes federal authorities to investigate any reported mysterious disappearance or kidnapping involving a child 12 years or younger. However, the FBI can 
become involved with any missing child under the age of 18 as an assisting agency to the local police department. There does not have to be a ransom demand, and the child does not have to cross the state lines or be missing for 24 hours. Research indicates the sooner that a missing child is reported, the more likely there will be a successful outcome in the return of the child being unharmed. Richard Hoffman said himself, They think when I die, the case will die. They think it will be like a book I close, but the book, it will never close. He was correct. The case is still in question today. The American Bar Association viewed the trial as a media circus and called for reform. In 1937, the ABA included a prohibition on courtroom photography in its Canons of Professional and Judicial Ethics. All but two states adopted the ban, and the U.S. Congress amended the federal rules of criminal procedure to ban cameras and broadcasting from federal courts. The ban on photography in courtrooms prompted by the trial would last nearly four decades. At the time of the kidnapping, Anne was pregnant. After the birth of the second baby, another son, named John in 1932, Anne said, A spell had been broken, the spell over us that made me dread everything and fell that nothing would go right after this. The spell was broken by this real, tangible, perfect baby coming into an imperfect world and the coming out of the teeth of sorrow miracle. Following the birth of John Lindbergh in 1932, Charles made a statement to the press saying, Mrs. Lindbergh and I have made our home in New Jersey. It is naturally our wish to continue to live there near our friends and interests. Obviously, However, it is impossible for us to subject the life of our second son to the publicity which we feel was in large measure responsible for the death of our first. We feel our children have a right to grow up normally with other children. Continued publicity will make this impossible. I am appealing to the press to permit our children to lead lives of normal Americans. Ultimately, the couple's request for privacy was not met by the press, and the family decided to relocate to Europe in December of 1935. For almost four years, they lived in England and France, making only one brief holiday visit to the United States in December of 1937. Throughout the years, the family lived in England and Paris. After the birth of their second son, John, Charles and Anne Lindbergh went on to have four more children. After the birth of each child, Charles took Anne on weeks-long flights to wean her from the, her newborns. During their time living abroad, the Lindberghs enjoyed not being swarmed by the press and felt that their family was finally safe. The parents were always worried and maybe a little paranoid, but justifiably so after what had happened about their children's safety. They were a tight-knit family, and the children were expected to be independent, self-sufficient, and responsible. It was expected that the children would work on useful skills and strive for intellectual honesty. It was strongly emphasized by their father. 
The children were not raised to think of themselves as children of famous parents, though they would inherit all of their fortunes on their 21st birthdays. The Lindbergh children lived a comfortable lifestyle. When Anne sought out psychotherapy to treat her ensuing depression from being separated from her newborns during her childbearing years, Charles moved out of his bed- their bedroom. Charles and Anne lived increasingly separate lives as time went on. Following this tragic event, baby monitors were invented and released to the market in 1937. This was a revolutionary product that made parenting much less stressful. The radio nurse was created by Zenith President Eugene McDonald Jr., who was concerned for his daughter's safety following the 1932 Lindbergh baby kidnapping. McDonald's device allowed monitoring of children after bedtime. The guardian ear transmitter was installed in a child's bedroom while the radio nurse receiver was placed near the parents. The Zenith Radio Corporation hired a sculptor, Isamu Nagachuchi, to design the first monitor in 1937. The aesthetic was fitting because it looked like an abstract image of a nurse with a cap. The audio baby monitor, which was completed and ready for sale in 1938, was named Zenith Radio Nurse. It had a sound amplifying system with two units, the guardian ear and the radio receiver. The guardian's ear's analog intercom system system transmitted sound on a 300 signal transmitter over the power line, meaning that the signal was sent through the home's electric wiring. This communication was one way, and the Zenith radio nurse sold for $29.95 in 1938, which is the equivalent of $523 in 2019. It cost, it later cost $19.95, an equivalent of $325 today. This was quite expensive, especially considering the hardships going on in the 30s. Very few parents could afford it. In addition to its electrical transmissions that were plagued with technical problems, mainly distortions and interference, the Zenith monitors did not work well with very loud volumes and resulted in distortions and speaker rattles, leaving parents to struggle to get the most out of the monitor and the communication, especially since it was only one way. Something felt like a failure at the time paved the way for bigger and better baby monitor designs. The baby monitor would have to wait another 50 years around the same time that wireless phones were becoming popular in the 1980s to become a staple in a nursery. The first baby monitor that allowed for two-way communication was introduced in 1997. Parents could now soothe their little ones by talking into the unit. By 1999, the first baby monitor that allowed parents to see their babies via a monitor was introduced. This design came about because of an increase in the number of cases involving nannies abusing babies. In 2000, monitors using Wi-Fi to transmit signals emerged on the market. Wi-Fi monitors had a better picture quality and a more impressive list of features. 
As of 2015, companies started manufacturing baby monitors, smart baby monitors. These units have artificial intelligence incorporated into the design. As a result, these new age baby monitors have features such as sensory functions, the ability to track vital signs such as your baby's breathing patterns, heart and pulse rate, as well as your little one's sleeping patterns. Some examples of these types of monitors are the Nanit, the Owlet, and Miku. In hindsight, looking back at this history and comparing the Zenith radio nurse with the modern monitors, it's clear that we've come a long way. Colonel Charles Lindbergh continued to be a prime mover in the aviation industry as a consultant. Charles Lindbergh died of lymphoma at the age of 72 in 1974 while living in Hawaii. During her widowhood, Anne Mora Lindbergh continued to write following her husband's death. She became involved with community service, her grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. She was presented with many honorary degrees from institutions of higher education, including Smith College, her alma mater, and Amherst College. She has been inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame and the National Aviation Hall of Fame. Anne Morrow Lindbergh passed away at 94 years old on February 8th of 2001 after suffering from several strokes over her last years. In 2003, a group of three siblings revealed they were Charles's children. Unknown to his family back in the U.S., in 1957, Lindbergh, who was then 55 years old, met and developed a relationship with Bridget Hesshamer, a 31-year-old hat maker living living in Munich, Germany. They began a long-term affair that ended in his death in 1974. They kept their relationship a secret even from her their children. Lindbergh would visit Bridget two to three times a year, introducing himself to the children as Mr. Carew Kent. At the same time, Lindbergh was also involved in a secret relationship with Bridget's sister, Marietta, and a third woman named Valeska, who was Mr. Lindbergh's German translator and secretary. Lindbergh had two other children with each of these women, again, keeping the identity of his paternity a secret. Ten days before his death in 1974, Lindbergh wrote letters to his mistresses, asking them to continue utmost secrecy. They kept their promise until Astrid confronted her mother, Bridget, in the 1990s. After learning the truth of her father's identity, Astrid was sworn to secrecy until her mother's death in 2001. The other two families have continued their silence and not giving it any interviews to this day. In the summer of 2003, the three siblings born from Bridget and Charles broke their silence. They made no claim to the Lindbergh estate, but they went public because they wanted to verify their family relationship before publishing a book about their mother's long-term secret affair with Charles Lindbergh. The existence of Lindbergh's secret German children adds quite the twist to the life story of a man who was happily married to an American Anne Morrow. Reeve Lindbergh, the youngest of the aviator couple's children, connected with her European siblings and wrote in an essay published in 2009 about her father's secrets called Forward From Here, Leaving Middle Age and Other Unexpected Adventures. She wrote, 
I have the feeling that he was the only person involved with all of these families who knew the full truth. And I keep thinking by the time he died in 1974, my father had made his life so complicated that he had to keep each part separate from the other parts. I don't know why he lived this way. I don't think I will ever know. But what it means to me is that every intimate human connection my father had during his later years was fractured by secrecy. Christina Lindbergh, the granddaughter of Anne and Charles, has spoken about her grandfather's infidelities and secret families. I cannot imagine why that happened. All the children of these other families are younger than I am. How we could have used some of that attention he gave them. But who knows? Someone said maybe he wanted to experience an unfamous family life. I know that I raised two children and found that exhausting. After he had five living children in his first family, all of whom were wonderful, but it was not easy. Anna Hotman, Bruno Hotman's widow, maintained his innocence for the rest of her life. I know my Richard could never do such a thing, she repeatedly declared. Hotman's widow, aged 92, pleaded one last time for the case to be reopened. Robert R. Bryan, Anna's lawyer, told the New York Times that the evidence was faked and that witnesses were both pressured and bribed to support the state's case. Bryan, an anti-death penalty activist, had also done legal work for one of the Lindbergh baby claimants. Bryan declared that the trial of the century was the greatest fraud in U.S. legal history. Evidence gathered in recent years strongly suggests that at least two other men were involved in the kidnap plot and that Cemetery John was in fact not Ottman. She never remarried and she never forgot the man she called Richard. In his honor, she refused to say liberty and justice for all when she pledged allegiance to the American flag. Through the years, Miss Hotman maintained the same story that on March 1st, 1932, the night the child was kidnapped, that nasty and cold night, as she called it during a 1991 visit to Flemington, her husband picked her up from the bakery where she worked and the two drove to their home in the Bronx where they stayed through the night. Anna Hotman's decades-long mission ended in a hospital in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where she died at the age of 95 on October 10, 1994. This was the 69th anniversary of her marriage. Betty Gow was overwhelmed by the media attention she was receiving at the time of the trial and returned to Scotland. She rejected a career involving children and became a seamstress for the rest of her days. However, she seemed at peace with her connection to the case. After the trial, she never spoke of her ordeal until one day in 1993 when a U.S. writer researching a book on the Lindbergh family knocked on the door of her house in Glasgow. In retrospect, it seems unbelievable that the Lindberghs would have ever suspected Betty of working with the kidnapper. There's nothing to support they ever thought it was the case, but it wasn't to her. In 1993, at the age of 88, she was interviewed by Lindbergh biographer A. Scott Burge. He told her that Mrs. Lindbergh sent her regards, at which point she just burst into tears. After returning to Scotland, Betty had sent a letter to the Lindberghs that had never been replied to. For decades, she believed they hated her and blamed her for Charlie's death. It is entirely possible that with all of their travels, the couple never actually received the letter. 
It seems understandable that Betty, the woman who cared for their child and loved him dearly, would have needed to hear from his parents that they believed it wasn't her fault. Many publications have been based on the case, including Agatha Christie's Murder on the Oriental Express. In the classic mystery, the detective investigates the murder of Samuel Ratchet. Years ago, Ratchet was behind the kidnapping of little Daisy Armstrong, but he escaped punishment. As the detective discovers, everyone on this train has a connection to the tragedy. Dramatically, members of the Armstrong family are revealed among the passengers as well as former staff members. This was no doubt pragmatic on Christie's part. A family can only have so many relatives, but her plot hinged not just on the loss of the kidnapped child, but the suicide of a servant suspected in the crime. The connections are always there when you look at things like this. But this one is a little bit more suspect. The Moros and the Lindberghs insisted that they had complete trust in their domestic staff, but police were hesitant to rule anyone out at the time. Despite what we covered about Violet Sharp and her reasoning for being elusive, she is used in creating reasonable doubt in almost every situation. Some people theorize Violet knew more than she let on and kept her secrets with her even in death. Violet had hopes of marrying a fellow servant, Septimus Banks, the butler. However, he was rumored to be an alcoholic, and rumors suggested that Violet had aborted his baby previously. On the night of the baby's abduction, Violet was out with a man. By all appearances, she wanted to escape the life of a servant. She was in her late 20s at this time. She may as well have been a spinster. She had a bad reputation because of her relationships with men. Money earned by helping a kidnapper would be an easy way out for her. She could start a whole new life. She was one of the very few people who knew that the family would be at Hopewell that night. She also knew the layout of the house and the location of the nursery. It was later discovered that Hotman, although married, was known to be in the company of other women, and Violet was known for her relationships with random men as well. Over the years, dozens have come forward placing doubt on this case and claiming to be the Lindbergh baby. One man who recovered memories of being carried out of the Lindbergh nursery through hypnosis legally changed his name to Charles A. Lindbergh III. The most baffling instance seems to have been in 1936 when four-year-old Bobby Dolphin was thrown into the international spotlight in January. Summit County, Ohio sheriffs, deputies, and federal agents were investigating a wild rumor that the boy was really the Lindbergh boy. Bobby's great aunt on his father's side, a 60-year-old Barberton, Ohio woman, contacted Akron private detective John I. Silverstein, who took her story to local authorities. She told Silverstein that the boy's mother was involved in a 1932 conspiracy to exchange her sickly son, not yet seven months old at the time of the kidnapping, for the Lindbergh boy. Despite law enforcement thinking this was outrageous, they dutifully checked it out. Witnesses began to corroborate the far-fetched tale and the story took on a life of its own. When the police found the child, the officers on the scene did a double take when they spotted the boy. He really did resemble the Lindbergh baby. Blue eyes, curly blonde hair, dimpled chin. It may have just been a strange coincidence. However, the boy was wearing an aviator's helmet and goggles, just like what Charles Lindbergh wore on his solo fight across the Atlantic. Local newspapers published photos and articles about Lindy's double. 
The news spread to the Associated Press and the United Press International, which transmitted stories to newspapers around the world. Bobby was taken to the Akron police station to have fingerprints and footprints made. When the boy took off his shoes, it was noticed that he had an overlapping toe on his right foot, just like Charlie. The Bobby Dolphin investigation screeched to a halt when Akron officials heard from Colonel H. Norman Schwarzkopf, commander of the New Jersey State Police, funny how we recognize that name, saying that Bobby's fingerprints had been compared to prints taken from one of the Lindbergh baby toys and they hadn't matched. The New Jersey State Police conducted a review of the case in 1981. As part of their research, the police used an electronic microscope to analyze the clothes found on the baby's corpse. They confirmed that the clothes of the body came from the Lindbergh home. Very recently, in November of 2022, according to the New Jersey Monitor, a woman from Princeton sued the state to get access to evidence in the 1932 Lindbergh kidnapping case in a quest to exonerate Richard Hotman. In her complaint, she mentions that no forensic examination using modern DNA testing had actually been done on the stamps, ransom envelopes, or even the wood or ladder to match the floorboards of the Hotman's attic, where investigators said he got wood to build the ladder. She had filed public records requests for access to 14 sealed envelopes and 11 stamps. Police said Bruno Richard Hotman used on ransom notes as well as wood from the ladder the kidnapper used to climb into the 20-month-old Charles Lindbergh Jr. second floor nursery. The New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy's office rejected her request saying they aren't the custodian of those records while the state police and attorney general's office failed to respond or provide a written explanation of any denial according to the lawsuit. People who have studied the Lindbergh kidnapping case have suspected that Bruno Hotman did not act alone and it would have been nearly impossible to commit the crime alone in the way that the evidence was found at the crime scene. To further prove this, according to the police reports, there were also two sets of footprints at the scene. Additionally, it would be impossible for anyone acting alone to have climbed the 30 inches or more from the top of the ladder to the window of the bedroom, grabbed the child, and then climbed back down the ladder holding the baby. The baby most likely was handed off to a secondary kidnapper at the top of the ladder. To some, another suspect on the list includes Charlie's own father, Charles Lindbergh. Whether or not Charles killed his son, either intentionally or unintentionally, is completely up for debate among those who believe this theory. He may have dropped his son from a ladder, killing him, then hid the body during a prank. The people who believe this act was intentional on Charles believe it was due to his eugenics beliefs. Proponents of eugenics argued that Europeans were the healthiest and therefore the superior. The Lindbergh's baby had health issues. Health is the key validity in this theory. Allegedly, Lindbergh was unhappy that his firstborn son was considered a weakling who had been diagnosed with an abnormally large head and may have suffered prenatal damage when Anne Lindbergh inhaled toxic fumes as the couple made a record-setting cross-country flight in April of 1930. The embarrassment of having a child with a vitamin deficiency and the implication of weak family genes led him to get rid of the baby in this theory. Of course, this is quite extreme, but the 1930s were crazy. People were easily shamed and afraid of their dirty secrets getting out. Just look at Violet Sharp. It doesn't help his case that according to the family staff, Charles Lindbergh had pretended that the eaglet was missing prior to the event, something we just can't get over. I think we both really can't put our finger on it. There's just so much to this case. 
every little detail seems to be relevant either because it's factual or it distracts you from the cold hard facts. The deeper I got into my research, the more distracted I felt. This might be because I'm a little squirrel-brained, but everywhere I turned, there was a new theory that came to a dead end. As you will come to find out about me, I'm not a very black and white kind of person. I'm more gray, meaning I see things from all angles, and it usually happens when I'm looking into conspiracy theories that I will see both ends of the spectrum. All I know is this is one of the first instances in the American judicial system that was very highly publicized and the issue of free press and a free and fair trial conflicted each other. I do not think Richard Hopman got a free trial. I say that definitively. I do believe the evidence was mainly circumstantial and that does not definitively prove Richard's involvement or sole involvement of the kidnapping and or murder. He may have been an accomplice either knowingly or unknowingly. I could admit circumstantially it doesn't look great for him, but that is not how the American judicial system was created to try and convict. It is just an awful that a sweet baby was killed at the root of this. As for who did it, I don't have a specific person in mind. I think there are several key players who are suspicious, including Richard Hoffman. I think there are a lot of puzzle pieces missing and that whatever narrative someone goes with, there could be portrayable evidence to support the multiple directions the case could take, which is why there is reasonable doubt surrounding the culprit of the case, point blank period. The verdict based on the evidence at the time should have been different. I would love to believe a father wouldn't murder his own child and frame someone else for doing it. With that said, I'm not sold on that scenario anyway. I think in all reality, even 90 years later, we will never know. In the 1930s, unfortunately, there was not the technology that we have to find and archive evidence like we do today. If it came down to it and I had to come up with some kind of conclusion, I would say Richard could have been involved. I don't think he acted alone. I believe one person committing this would be impossible. It's entirely possible that he simply built the ladder and unknowingly or knowingly assisted in the kidnap. I think it's extremely likely that the baby fell and that was what the blunt force trauma to the head was. I would like to believe that whoever did this went into it not wanting to kill the baby. While in some cases I believe in the death penalty, especially when it's a clear-cut case, I do think the death sentence in this case was a huge mistake. I think it should have been used as a bargaining chip to gain information to catch the other parties involved. From my perspective, at least one person got away with this. Honestly, I feel like Hotman had to have known something, otherwise the evidence would not have lined up as easily as it did for several of the things presented at the scene. The whole case, which had more information on it than we had any idea what to do with, was convoluted at best. Although, I do have some serious questions about whether or not the nanny was more involved in the crime. I would not blame her for a second for wanting to get the child out of a parenting environment as toxic as the one Colonel Lindbergh had created. I don't doubt that in this circumstance, many would not blame her had the publicity not been an absolute fiasco and fans being involved. The police involvement and confession and the lies involved in this case were where I was lost in the fact that the people who truly knew what was going on on that awful day 
to that poor, poor child will never truly be known. I am just glad that with the new technology in place to keep children safe, with monitoring, I can sleep a little better at night. That is, when we're not being kept up by the many thoughts of where, when, and why for our next topics. And with that, our first ever episode is complete. We really hope we did this case justice and gave the case a new light in a respectful way for everyone that was involved. Thank you for joining us for our Baby Monitor origin video. Let us know who you think the culprit in this truly convoluted case was. Thank you for listening and being a part of our first ever podcast episode. It is our plan to try to post episodes every other Wednesday. Stay tuned for clues every other Tuesday on our Instagram about the next video's topic. You can find all of our social media links on our link tree in the description box below. We hope to see you soon. Stay tuned for the next video. Thanks for watching.